And I want to begin uh, by showing you something. I don't know whether the camera can pick this up. We'll soon find out anyway. Um, for the benefit of those who are listening, our residential home on the landline, and also uh, for those who may listen to this on tape and wonder what I'm talking about, in my hand here, I have a little box. It's made of card. You can see it's about five inches wide, about three inches across. It's about an inch deep. It's called, and it's quite an old one this, it's called a promise box. So, for those of the younger generation who don't know what a promise box is, I will now open it up and explain what it is. It's, inside it, there are maybe 150 little rolled up pieces of paper stood on end. On in each one of them is a verse from the Bible, a promise from the Bible. And the instructions on the lid say, pick out one of the rolls, read the promise, commit it to memory, and replace it in the box. And to help you pick out a roll, there's a little pair of tweezers. So, why don't we do that? If I can manage to do this. And this will definitely be the King James Version, I'm pretty sure. And it says on it, words of Jesus, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. So I shall roll it up, put it back in the box. It says on it can be used at morning or evening worship at any meal table or family gathering in small Bible class or social company in hospital or infirmary in private or in many other ways. Now actually there's nothing wrong with that. But it isn't the best and certainly not the only way to read the Bible. You see one of the promise problems with a promise box is this. Although God has given us many great and precious promises as Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 verse 4. He has also given us many warnings as well. I don't know whether you can still buy promise boxes. This one is one shilling and sixpence from Pickering and Ingalls, it says inside it. So it must be, well, it's pretty old anyway. We had one at home, I remember, when I was younger. But whether or not you can buy one, I'm absolutely certain about this, unless somebody disabuses me of this at the door, I'm absolutely certain that no one has ever produced a warning box. You see, most of us prefer promises to warnings. But God normally never gives a promise without, on the other hand, a warning. Think of all the good things that God gave our first parents in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, he said, but then he added a prohibition and a warning. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Sadly, they failed to heed the warning. And the rest, as they say, is history. Our history. And not just the history of human beings in general, but it is the history of God's people. Those who know him. Those who have the privileges of being his people. And the history of the people of Israel, recorded in the Bible in the Old Testament, is a record of the failure of God's people to obey and heed God's warnings. And as a result, the terrible yet inevitable consequences uh, that followed. 
And now today, in our series in 1 Corinthians, which we've entitled Keeping First Things First, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, reminds them of this pattern of behaviour from the history of Israel and stresses to them the importance of learning from the past. And that's our theme for this evening. So, if you're going to learn and be warned, you need to turn to the warning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're reading the first 13 verses, page 1151. We'll help to have a Bible. If you don't have one, just ask someone to pass one to you. The Bible's in the pews. One Corinthians ten verse one. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm... Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This is God's word. It's been well said that those who fail to learn from the mistakes of history live to repeat them. Although it wasn't Paul who said this, and I can't work out even in my um, book where the exact source is, he would certainly have agreed with this sentiment. Looking back on the mistakes the people of Israel made, Paul says in verse 6, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. You will see if you have a new international version, there's one of those little footnotes at the bottom, And it says that the word examples can be translated as types. In other words, here is a pattern, a typical pattern of behaviour exhibited by the people of Israel under the old covenant or agreement that God made with them, which he says is likely to be repeated by Christians, those who live under the new covenant or agreement that God has made with us. You see, there is a strong hint in the background of this that these Christians in the city of Corinth thought they were different, thought they were immune from such dangers. They boasted, one of their key words was knowledge. They were in the know. But Paul begins this section by saying, 
I do not want you to be ignorant, verse 1, to fail to have real knowledge about our forefathers. Notice something interesting here. Paul is writing to Christians in the Greek city of Corinth who were all Gentiles by birth. Maybe there were one or two Jews, but almost largely this church was composed of Gentile people. Yet, he describes the people of Israel as our forefathers. And he, as we will see in a moment, he even says, Christ accompanied them on their journey through the wilderness, from Egypt to Canaan. He doesn't say, as it were, well, of course, these people were Israelites. But we are different because we are Christians. So we, we don't need to worry about making the same kind of mistakes. No, he says, hang on a minute. These people are our forefathers, and so we had better watch out, because we are prone to the same failings which are typical of our family. So the history of the people of Israel and the record of the church in Corinth serves as a warning to us today in Edinburgh if we claim to be Christians in the 21st century. We'd better watch out. In fact, Paul includes himself in the warning. If you were here before the summer break, we finished off at the end of chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, he is worried and concerned that after having preached to others, he himself might be disqualified from the prize that God has called him to. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. And so what follows is a link, he says. So, because of this, for I don't want you to be ignorant about the same danger that you were in. So I simply, before we come around the Lord's table, I want us to look more closely at what he writes and to suggest to you, in summary, there are three warnings from the wilderness in these verses. Three warnings from the wilderness. Here's the first one. Here in the first five verses is a warning against complacency. Paul describes in these verses the wonderful privilege which privileges which of all the nations on earth the people of Israel enjoyed. Especially on their journey, that famous journey from Egypt to Canaan through the wilderness when God was with them and brought them into the promised land eventually. He describes it and says, look at what it says in verse 2. He says, <coughs> in fact in verse 1 he says, our forefathers were all under the cloud. Now, you need to understand the Old Testament here. What is he talking about? If you don't know the Old Testament, just, just pause for a moment. In the Old Testament, the symbolic presence of God was seen in a cloud that accompanied the people of Israel on their journey. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was a symbol that God was with them. His presence was with them. However, notice that it occurs before the statement, they all passed through the sea. They were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea. Now you must have heard of this story. That's the famous story, remember, when Pharaoh's army were pursuing the Israelites. They were trapped by the sea in front of them, the Red Sea, and God opened up the way and they passed through on dry land and were saved. But the connection of the cloud and the sea, if you know the story in Exodus, we read that when Pharaoh's army was pursuing them, the cloud of God's presence came between the army of Pharaoh and the Israelites, so they couldn't see. It was a protective barrier that separated them off until the Israelites had passed through the sea, and then they were safe. It's a picture, if you like, of God's rescue plan, of God's salvation, that they were under the cloud and went through the sea. 
And then Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4 to focus on the food and drink they enjoyed on their journey, on God's provision. Look at what it says um, if you look at verses 3 and 4. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual drink. Now the word spiritual there doesn't mean that it wasn't, wasn't real food and real drink. What it means is that God supernaturally provided food and drink for them. You remember how they complained to God they had no food and God gave them this wonderful food called manna, which simply means in Hebrew, what is it? Because they got up one morning and saw this food there and they said in Hebrew, manna, what is it? And they called it, what is it? Well, it's manna. You remember that God provided water out of a rock. In fact, this happens at the beginning of the story and the end of it when Moses strikes the rock and water miraculously comes out of the rock. Now, these are the privileges that he's describing. But what is really interesting is how he describes the story because he writes it in Christian terms. Did you notice that? He says, the start of the journey was like baptism. See that? They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and the sea. To be baptised into Moses means to be fully identified with Moses, fully immersed into him as God's chosen leader. In the same way that Christians are baptised into Christ, fully identified with him. And the reference to the spiritual bread and spiritual water is almost certainly an allusion to what we're going to be celebrating this evening the bread and wine that Christians share together around the Lord's Supper. And this is made even more clear when we get this very strange statement when he says, the rock that accompanied them on their journey was Christ. Now you may think this is very strange. But what Paul is talking about here is, uh, to quote one particular writer, he says, from a Christian perspective, Paul recognises Christ as the pre-existent Son of God. Christ didn't come into being when he came to earth. He has always existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit, active with the Father in creation and redemption, and hence the agent of both physical and spiritual nourishment for his people in the desert. Now, why does, why does Paul, describing the history of Israel, describe it in Christian terms as though they were Christians, as it were? For a very good reason. And now we come to the point. These Christians in Corinth were playing with fire. They were deliberately going into situations where they were likely to be tempted to sin by going to pagan temples, joining in their rituals and celebrations. And they were at risk. But they were quite complacent about it because they believed their Christian experience would magically, as it were, protect them from any spiritual danger and from succumbing to temptation. They said, because we've been baptised, because we meet together and share around the Lord's table in the bread and the wine, we're safe, immune. But Paul says, think a moment. The people of Israel enjoyed similar privileges. They were baptised into Moses in the cloud in the Red Sea. They enjoyed supernatural spiritual food in the wilderness. They enjoyed all these privileges, but despite the privileges, they were not immune from God's judgment. And here's the point now in verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, the warning is as clear as can be. But I wonder how many of us reading it just bleep over it and think, it doesn't apply to me. I have to tell you it applies to me. It applies to you and the Corinthians. 
the bones of most of this generation, in fact all of them except two men, Joshua and Caleb, even Moses missed out, never made it to the promised land. Their bodies, their bleach bones, he says, lie scattered on the desert floor. And what it is saying to us is this, no matter what your Christian privileges are, no matter that you can look back and praise God that you've been baptised and that you've been saved and rescued from the power of Satan and brought into God's family, no matter how many times you've met around this table as a Christian, it does not provide any long-term immunity from displeasing God and missing out on all of God's promises. Whether that judgment is temporal in this life or eternal is not clear from this passage. But in either case, we should not risk it. It is a clear warning against complacency. So, how about you? Playing with fire? Sitting there thinking, well, I know I'm doing some things wrong, I'm living a life in some ways that isn't pleasing to God, but I'm okay because I've been baptised and I'm a Christian and God knows I am and here I am, I'm going to share in the bread and wine. Or maybe you're just about to, you're living a life that's really on the edge of the cliff and you're about to go over but you think, I'm okay, it'll not happen to me because I'm a Christian. This is the clearest possible warning against complacency. It does not provide you with a magical immunity against displeasing God and suffering God's judgment. It is a warning against complacency. So, what was it that the Israelites did and which the Christians in Corinth were in danger of doing, which displeased God? The next verses tell us because they contain a second warning in verses 6 through to 12. And that's a warning against idolatry. Look more closely at verse 6 and what it says about them. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. The literal meaning of setting your heart on evil is to lust or to crave after evil. It means not being satisfied with what God has given you and what you've got, but rather looking after and going after some kind of substitute. And the Bible calls any substitute that takes the place that God should in our lives is called an idol. Idolatry is the heart of all sin. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Because they were tempted by an offer of something that they thought God hadn't given them, that they wanted, rather than being satisfied with all the wonderful things that God had given them. At the heart of all sin is idolatry. In in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul writing says to the Colossians, avoid all kinds of sin, and he says, avoid covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. What is covetousness? It's wanting something that God hasn't given you. And when we set our hearts on that, when we say, well, I'm not satisfied with what God has given me. I'm not satisfied with my life or my relationships. I'm not satisfied with my home or my career or my finance and lack of it, whatever it may be. But deeper within is that desire, that lack of satisfaction with God, then immediately or inevitably, it may not take, it may not happen immediately, but inevitably you start down the path of idolatry. And Paul describes here in this passage four incidents from the life of the people of Israel to illustrate this. I only want to look at them briefly. The people of Corinth obviously knew the story as well, even though they were Gentiles. 
Some of you will know them well, others can look them up when you get home. The first in, uh, describes, in verse 7, describes actual idolatry. It's that famous incident again of the golden calf. You remember when Moses went upon the mountain to get the law, the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel made a golden calf and worshipped the calf and said, this calf had brought us out of Egypt. And it was accompanied by revelry, it says, pagan revelry, which probably includes sexual license. And the result, which is not specifically mentioned, is that God's judgment fell upon the people of Israel in the form of a plague. The next incident is even more specific. And what is in focus there is sexual immorality, which Paul has already written to and we studied in 1 Corinthians 6. And the background there is in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament 25, when the prophet Balaam, this rather strange character who was hired to curse God's people and couldn't do it, used a different method. He brought Moabite women into the camp of Israel and the people, the men there, committed adultery and were seduced away from following the Lord. And again, God's judgment by plague fell upon them. 23,000 people were killed. Book of Numbers says 24. You can read dozens of articles that explain the discrepancy and if you really want to know, I'll try and tell you afterwards. The third sin there is described as testing the Lord, verse 9. And the judgment by fatal snake bites identifies it to that in Numbers 21 when the people of Israel complained against the Lord. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, no water. We detest this miserable manna that you've provided for us. Now to test someone means to see how far you can go with them before you provoke them. If you've got children, you almost certainly have been tested. They'll push you right to the limit to watch how far they can go before you finally respond in judgment. And it says you can do that with God. You can push God to the limits. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. And they discovered that God's patience was not limitless. And the snakes were judgment. And the final example in verse 10 is again grumbling, but this time specifically grumbling against Moses as God's leader. Probably refers to the rebellion of a man called Korah and his companions in number 16, or maybe a previous rebellion in Numbers 14. In both cases, God's judgment falls upon them. In each case, judgment follows. Now, the application to the Christians in Corinth is clear. They were visiting these pagan temples in Corinth, joining in the feasts associated with idol worship. They were putting God to the test, seeing how far they could go without sinning, and complaining against Paul, his spokesman, who challenged them about their lifestyle and told them this was wrong. And the warning is, if you persist in this behaviour, God's judgment will fall upon you as surely as it did upon that previous generation. And he says these events are an even greater warning to us because on us the fulfilment, you see what it happened? On whom, verse 11, the fulfilment of the ages has come. All of God's plans and privileges are now poured out upon us. The final generation in God's plans for eternity, as it were, with the coming of Christ. Now, what about us? While we may not be literally idol worshippers, though many people are going back to the old idols from the east, worshipping them, nonetheless, we are not exempt from idolatry, from lusting after things which are evil, doubting God's goodness, and grumbling about what he has given us. And we can be in danger of putting God to the test 
of seeing how far we can get to the cliff without falling off, instead of staying away from it by as long a distance as possible. And we can grumble against God's word and those who challenge us in our lifestyle. And if so, we are flirting with disaster. We need to think otherwise. If we think we are immune from God's judgment, so again the warning is watch out, verse 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, I don't know who this message is applied to, except I apply it to myself, first of all, but I apply it to you as a congregation and to you as individuals. And only the Holy Spirit can apply it to individual lives. Who knows? Behind the facade, behind the song, behind the evangelical cliche and smile, who knows how many of us are flirting with spiritual disaster. And we think, somehow, we're immune. We can get away with it. We can book the system. We can worship idols. Are we satisfied with what God has given us? Are we finding our satisfaction in Christ and what he offers? Or are we listing after other things and trying to keep a foot in both camps? Well, it may be quite a long time before you stop coming to Charlotte Chapel. You might still keep coming. But you can never have a foot in both camps. You've got to worship the Lord wholeheartedly. But notice finally there's a third warning, a warning against despondency. Verse 13. This is probably the best, if you're a Christian, this is one of the best known verses in in, in the chapter in 1 Corinthians. No temptation has seized you, except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. And this verse has been a great encouragement to many Christians. But what is interesting here is, why does it occur here in this chapter? Many people have commented, if you took it out, the sense would flow very naturally from verse 12 straight into verse 14. I think there is a connection between the conclusion of verses 1 to 12 and then leading into verses 14 and the rest that we'll look at, God willing, uh, next Sunday. Paul has stressed here the certainty of God's judgment, whether on the people of Israel in the past or whether on Christians in Corinth. He said, no one is invulnerable. We're all in danger of falling. And maybe the Christians in Corinth, and maybe you're sitting there this evening and saying, well, I I feel pretty despondent about this. What's the point in trying? If God's people have always failed in the past and fallen into sin, how can I possibly hope to resist temptation? It's impossible. I'm probably going to give in, so I may as well give up in despair. Maybe you feel defeated. And Paul responds by saying two things. First of all, he says, two reasons for not giving up in despair. He says, first of all, no temptation is unique. The word temptation there can mean test or trial, or temptation to sin. And what he's saying is, whatever trial you are going through, it's not unique. It's common to all people. I find as a pastor, you talk to people, and when people finally open up about their battles and struggles, nearly always people say, I'm struggling with this particular issue, and it's absolutely, they feel it's unique to them. No one else has been tempted in this way. No one else has quite struggled in the way they have with this particular problem. Listen, I tell you, there is no temptation such as is common to man, he says. 
everyone faces the same kind of challenge. And that's, in one way, it's a kind of encouragement to us to discover we're not alone. If we were more honest and open with one another, we'd be more encouraging to one another. I speak particularly to men. Women are much more open and willing to share their hearts and, and their struggles and battles. But men just put on this brave front and say, grit of teeth, I'm not going to let on to any other man that I'm really struggling in any particular area because it would make me look bad and less manly. There's a great encouragement in knowing that the temptations we suffer from are common to all people. However, that's not enough. If it just means that we sit and commiserate with one another. Verse 13 goes on to say a second thing about temptation, which is an antidote to despair and defeatism. He says, God is faithful. When it appears, and maybe you're facing some great temptation at the moment, who knows? Some temptation and test or trial that God has put you through, and you just feel, this just, I just can't cope under this. Or maybe it's a temptation to sin, and you say, there's just no way I, I, I'm just going to give in. I know I am. When it appears that my temptation or test is too great, I must yield to it. I can prove God's faithfulness, for he says, God will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The word way out is a lovely word in the original. It's the word used, for example, of an army hemmed in in a valley, you know, with a surrounding force, a much superior force. And it looks like they're absolutely trapped and they're about to be obliterated and massacred. And then suddenly someone notices in the rock face a narrow defile and they scuttle at the top of there and they shoot through it and they escape to liberty. That kind of feeling behind it. One writer, Paul Barnett, comments, God who is powerful as well as faithful will not allow you to be shut in a room with no exit. Maybe worth remembering that. God who is faithful will not allow you to be shut in a room with no exit. Then he goes on, whatever the temptation we face or the trial we must endure, we're not locked in by it. Rather, God will also provide us with at least one door through which we can make our escape. However, and now here comes the connection with what follows. All of us are subject to temptation. You can't live in the world without temptation. Even the old monks who went out in the desert discovered the temptation was in their heads and minds. You can't escape temptation. But you can avoid putting yourself in a situation where you are tempted and you know you're going to be tempted. And that's why Paul goes on to say, in verse 14, and we'll look at it, God willing, next week, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The Corinthians need to flee, to run away from situations that are going to place them in temptation where there is no way out. You see, the normal temptation that we all suffer, God will always provide a way out so that we can bear up under it. But if we deliberately place ourselves in a situation where we know we will be tempted, we deliberately place ourselves in that position, then there is no way out. We are bound to succumb. In all other situations, God puts us to the test and he will always provide a way out so that we can stand up under the temptation. Now the application again is clear. Avoid those places and activities that you know will put you under pressure to sin. You can't avoid temptation, but don't seek it. Don't put God to the test, but allow him to put you to the test. Then and only then will you find a way out so you can stand up under it. So the question is, 
Is God testing you, or are you putting him to the test? Almost finished. I began by saying that we need to focus not only on God's promises, but also his warnings. But I want to put the other side to you as well. The negative is never enough. One of the great dangers of the Christians often is we become defined by the negative. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who doesn't do the following things. And you sometimes ask, well, what do you do instead of not doing those things? And what we need to emphasize is that what God offers us and what God gives us in Christ always, always, if we truly understand and appreciate it, more than compensates for all that is on offer outside of Christ. We need to see that what God offers us is so attractive that everything else in comparison is seen in the light of what it really is. Something poor and second rate. And it's this which Jesus offers to us which we celebrate around the Lord's table. So let me leave you with a final promise and I didn't find it in the box but I'm almost sure it's in there somewhere. John 6:35 to reflect on as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now I want to say this evening, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, what the Lord Jesus Christ offers to you this evening, his promise, is full satisfaction. You'll never grow hungry You'll never be thirsty. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? The promise of Christ, that refreshment that only He can give. And I want to encourage you as you come to this table, not just to avoid sin and temptation and those things that you struggle with, but learn to love Christ, to appreciate all that He is, to enjoy His presence, to find your satisfaction in him alone and hang on to this promise when you're tempted. Jesus offers something far greater. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. We're going to do that as we come around the Lord's table. Our associate, Pastor Bill Denham, is going to lead us around the Lord's table. We're going to sing another hymn, an older hymn, but it emphasizes this particular